I'd climbed down into some caves um, where the, the Timorese had been fighting the Indonesians when they're striving for independence. And I was down in these caves with, a, 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 with our Timorese students. Um, and we've got to find a way for the American students to come in. So we're walking over these guano beds and I'm just talking to the Timorese lads and I got my mouth open when a bat flew over and took a piss. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us yet again. As promised, we have the delightful Mark O'Shea back. We had so much excellent, excellent feedback. We have never had a guest that has generated so many comments and questions um in our social media and i've had so many people just reach out and say what a really fascinating great show it was so we're very pleased we got him back he's been super busy and it's very kind of him to just uh, drop everything and come back on so as promised we're going to do a part two um so without further ado thank you for coming back mark really, no, really you're welcome. um firstly how did your conference go oh gosh that was tremendous um that did go well we it went better than we could have ever hoped i mean we had a hundred hundred eighty seven delegates i think from twenty seven countries across four continents and turkey and ivory coast were represented by posters because they couldn't get visas to come in the end um i can't remember the exact numbers of but we're running three parallel uh, uh symposia at any one time we had i think four plenaries they were all excellent on subjects like rewilding or um the place of museums in in a, an age of extinction and uh, they, they would and um the Monday was the, 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 the when re- people registered, and then we had the icebreaker and the welcome speeches and everything, and then everyone went to the pub. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were full on all day. Um, the building was fantastic. Um, the university support was great, and uh, it was it was just tremendous. And then the Friday was the ha- half day. With and then gradually the wind down. We had a, we had um, uh, the gala banquet was at the Molyneux, home of Premier League football club Wolverhampton Wanderers, and the, you know, in in the dark with the the pitches all lit up. It was pretty atmospheric, and very kindly the Molyneux let all the people who hadn't come to the actual gala dinner come in and have a drink at the end so we're all together again a lot of oh, that's us. great that's um awesome. we went around we're around at all the pubs in wolverhampton i mean i'd go into a, it was try, i go into wolverhampton pubs now and it's really anticlimactic because there are no international 
top names in herpetology in any of them. And and, and I think, oh, that's where so-and-so was, you know. And I, oh, we, we're having, I was having a, a pint in, in, in there with so-and-so. And, you know, it was, it was great. Um, we all, a lot of us ended up in the Gifford, which is um, a very old pub, but it's a, it's a, a rock biker, proper biker pub. Um, everyone fitted in well. We're, and, and then, of course, on the Saturday, um, around the um, post-conference tour, which was the Darwin Walk. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that. With John King, and that was tremendous. And the weather was amazing. It was hotter than Nairobi. The weather was great all week. I told people, I said, all this stuff about England being wet and cold, forget it. You're living it. It's all a myth, it, right? It, it's, it's a myth. myth. The weather's fantastic. Look, you know, I mean, we're all in shorts all week. It was tremendous, honest to God. And the conference, the, the post-conference tour, the Darwin tour, ended up in, in the bedroom where Charles Darwin was born. I mean, it, it was that was great. And then we, the one thing was trying to get into a pub in Shrewsbury, which could take, I think it was about 13 or 14 of us, that could take that number uh, on the tour on a hottest Saturday ever when everybody's trying to keep cool, it yeah. was pretty hard. And we ended up not in a traditional British pub at all, but in a, a Texan pub. <laughs> oh, my days. How unpleasant. Yeah, it was nice, though. <laughs> the beer was cold. So, it, honestly, we've been talking about it ever since. And, and, and I was talking to my colleagues on, on the local organising committee, and I said, how do we follow that? We're not big enough to host the World Congress of Herpetology, which, of course, is next September, September 20, uh, 2024 in, in Kuching, in Sarawak, Borneo. We're not big enough to host the World Congress. We, I don't know where we'd hold the plenaries for a start, the Grand Theatre. Um, so how, how do you follow sort of like the European Congress with anything? It's just like, hang on, we've done that now. Um, for, I, yeah. I, it's it's almost a shame because you can't think right now. Let's do so and so. There isn't a step up. Yeah, but you just you just do it do it again, man. That's it. Was, just do it again. Do it again. What do you mean? Like do you mean like the World Cup's going to the to the Middle East for the second time because no because Australia pulled out and Saudi's hosting it and it was in Qatar. Yeah, uh. that's yes, that's. Do it, do it, do the same thing again. No, it it hasn't. The, the the European Congress of Herpetology hasn't been in Britain, in the UK, since it was held during the First World Congress of Herpetology in 1989 in September at the University of Canterbury, Kent. And I remember it very well because I was a steward there at the time. And so um, 1989 to, to uh, 2023. So it'll be a while before it's in England again. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I'm glad. It, I'm glad it was uh, such a resounding success. That's that's absolutely splendid. Yeah, I, it was. It's one of the best things I think I've ever achieved, along with my colleagues. It really yeah. was. And the no, university are very proud of it. No, they you should know, be. That's brilliant. We, well, we pulled this off against all odds. Really, it took a lot of organising. But it, but it was, my God, it was worth it. hundred percent. I mean, if you'd have done and, it... And we had to put out a few fires along the way that people oh, yeah, didn't sure. know about. A yeah. few problems, but, but we resolved them all. 
yeah. you know, well, we're, we're, anyway, anyway, this isn't about that. It's just that I am still buzzing. Well, that's good. That's, that's, um, if you deserve the success, that's great. I mean, if you'd done it this week, you'd have been drowned out. I mean, it just <laughs> has. Yeah, it would. Yes. Yeah. I mean, would I, not have been I went. I went to Florida expecting it to be super hot and really uh, tropical, and it was freezing cold. I had a fleece on at one point. So uh, no, you're just old and thin blooded. I'm just ripped with no body fat. Is the uh, there you go. There you go. That's yeah. that's the truth of it. <laughs> is that what you say? Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it can get cold in Florida. I mean, there was that a few years ago. I mean, the alligators were they were they were freezing. Some died, didn't they? There was a real cold snap went through Florida a few years ago. Yeah. You know? I mean, Florida, I mean, I know you've been there. Florida for me was amazing just to see all the invasives. I was just going to say, all herbs, <laughs> all herbs in one world, in the world. Exactly, in one yeah. It's the, yeah. I mean, literally, backyard, sat in Phil's back garden and just helped. It was, that was great. Well, I, was... I first went to Florida in 1980, um, and that was when Louis Porras was still running the shed. Um, and the first herb I found was a Mediterranean gecko in my motel room. And the second herp I found was a cane toad. I was on the veranda. We saw cane toads. Um, I was very excited. Yeah. And, yeah, um, so I've seen quite a few. But it was, you know, start start with the invasives, if you the way you mean to go on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we were fortunate. We, we, we saw a great deal of stuff. Unfortunately, we didn't see one of our target species, which was the eastern diamondback. Um, or we found one, but it was dying yeah. from being hit by a car, which was which is a, which is a problem. Ah, no, I'll tell you. Sorry, I didn't want to butt in then. But no, go on, you crack on. Um, I was road cruising with my friends in 1980, and we we're out photographing and finding stuff and photographing. And we're driving down in the in the Everglades, and this big Ranger truck. Um. Uh, Everglades National Park, I think they're, they're light green vehicles, came alongside us. And this guy with a double neck who looked like a Marine <laughs> sergeant looked down at us, crew cut and everything, and, and we weren't crew cut. Um, and he looked at us and then he pulled away and we thought, hmm, yeah, I don't think he liked the look of us. Anyway, we saw him break down the ways and he got out of his vehicle and we stopped and we could see his tail lights are on and he's got out and he's doing something. And um, we thought, well, we can't just sit here. So we started to move forward down the road towards him and he got back in and drove off. And when we got to where he was, he bashed a cottonmouth water moccasin. Oh. Park Ranger had got out of his car and bashed up a cottonmouth. Amazing. So yeah, yeah. Can you say wild? Not great. Wild. Yeah, we saw we saw quite a few cotton mouths. Beautiful species. Really, really. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, We also well, we didn't. One of our party was fortunate enough to see a coral snake, which yeah, that's a bit special. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't get it. He flushed it before we could get to it, but um, at least one of us got that. Lots of pygmies. They're really cool. Little pygmy, yeah, mouse. yeah, the little duskies, yeah, yes. really nice. Barbary, yeah, really, really nice trip. And we even managed yeah. to get Phil, who's a Floridian, we even managed to get him a new species of snake that he hadn't seen. 
A couple, a couple of them. Which well, one? Yeah, well, well, yeah, it could it could be any. Take your pick from anywhere around the world. <laughs> yeah, well, that's man it was a man <laughs> That'd be amazing. That'd it was be a sniper. That would be in Phil's collection. That would not be wild for sure. Long, for sure. Um, <laughs> no, we, we managed to see uh, the Florida pine snake, which was amazing. oh yeah, very uh, very rare. It's Magaitis. 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 Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, black. Yeah. And we also saw. Um, what was it called, Phil? I, I, salt water. Banded the, salt. the mangrove salt marsh snake. Oh salt yes, Clarky. Yeah, Meredith yes. Clarky. Which yeah. which color face? So this uh, was the uh, the compressicata, which is compressicata. The They're up in yeah. orange, aren't they? Well, no. So this one was crazy. This one was like a slate gray color with gray banding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it yeah. very much had a um uh, a sea crate appearance to it. Well, not ex ex excluding the laterally compressed tail. Yes, um, yes, correct. Yes. But in terms of, but in it's terms the of the... thing, it's the nearest thing you've got to a homolopsid. Yes, correct. Effect, Very correct. You know, yes, because it's because it's it's living in the mangrove habitats. Yeah, yeah, compressive order, and it does have a the, the name says flattened tail. Yeah, yeah. So yes, that's I, I haven't seen one of those in the in the scales, so to speak. That's a nice find. Oh, yeah. That's good. Well, no, Florida is really, I mean, it's a, it's a good place for people to have their first herping trips. Oh, 100%. There's, there's... You know, it is because it's, it's, you just don't know what you're going to, to turn up. I mean, it, one of the first things we found there um, was a seminatrix uh, pygae, the, the little swamp, red belly swamp snake. Yeah. Oh, you know? yeah. And yeah. Even, even some of the small stuff, you're stopping by the side of the road and, rolling old mattresses that somebody is very kindly thrown on the side of the road fly tipping anywhere else you you go that dirty bugger but you find it's, it's a mecca to send things over. it's the and weirdest thing it yeah. is and and uh you know you get those little um key geckos you know the little tiny spherodactylids yes i haven't they're, found they're one yet big, yeah they're not much bigger than a spider notius yeah. notius Things like that. Some of those little geckos are are, are really they're so petite, they're so delicate, and, we and they're found, really attractive. Yeah, talking of petite, we found the oak toad, which is the most adorable thing. It's you know adult size is the size of your thumbnail for a yeah. toad. That's really it's, it's really special to see that. I bet they're having a job breeding with the old um, rhinella hopping about. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I would say an adult oak toad is probably the size of a hatchling cane toad. Um, yeah, it's probably the size of a meal of a cane toad. Yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. I mean, you you you're always surprised when you go herping down there because you don't yeah. really know what you're going to find. No, but it, it was grand. Can't can't fault it. Yeah. It was really no. really cool. It's a good time, man. Good. Time. Any nice burrowers there? Well, you know, burrowing species. So there was a few things that were on my radar, considerably the, the Florida worm lizard, but we oh, were yeah. not anywhere near the habitat. And uh, but I think I got a lead on some some good looking sandy soil that I'm going to try and hit in the next six months yeah. or so during winter. Because that's quite. I mean, that's that's a monotypic yeah. family. 
I know. I know. I actually you know, was considering trying to do some more homework and maybe even try to keep one. Yeah, so, that'd be interesting. Anything borrowing yeah. is worth keeping, as as, yeah. as Nipper will tell you. <laughs> yes, it. yes. If you if you want a tray of soil in your house, go for it. That's amazing. Well, and I'll be honest, we we had that cold snap when when Nipper was down here, and I we got a little bit of rain, we got a little bit of cold snap. I really was hoping for some sirens and stuff, and uh, and I was looking on iNaturalist, and where we were was a bunch of two-toed and fuma spots. Really, yeah, those are things, so, see, those, yeah, those yeah. and hellbenders and stuff like that are really, oh, yeah. they're the re they're really special, um, amphibians, yeah, yeah, Any, anything like that. It's just, it's, it's incredibly primeval. You sort of feel that you're only one stage up from Tiktaalik when you look at something yeah. like that, yes. Yeah, uh, I mean, the siren, the sirens have got that, they, they, they've only, they've only got four limbs, no hind limbs, haven't they? That's it, yeah. yeah. Which is the unusual thing. The, the three species are the only amphibians in that situation. And there aren't that many reptiles either because you've got the three bipeds, four limbs, no hind limbs, um, in, in the amphisbenians. And then you've got, there's, there's maybe a half dozen skinks that have got four limbs and no hind limbs, mostly um, Indian, um, okay. really rare Indian stuff. And then that's it. Whereas hind limbs and no forelimbs is a really common scenario because you'll get it with pythons and boas, of course, and you'll get it with um, any number of uh, members of uh, in the skinks, um, in the anguids, uh, you know, the uh, um, Pseudopusipodus, um, the Sheltopusik from Yugoslavia, the big, the largest legless lizard in the world. That's got scaly flaps for the hind limbs, but no forelimbs. You've got um, the um, the, the uh, pugapods in uh, Australia and up into New Guinea, Lyallis, you've got Delma, you've got all of uh, Pygopus, all of those, hind limbs, no forelimbs. So that there's nothing unusual in that. You're used to sort of hind limbs being retained, forelimbs lost. But the other way around is extremely rare. You've got three amphibians, well, the, the sirens, three uh, bipeds in the amphisbenia and then half a dozen half a dozen skinks and that's your lot pretty much i think what did i photograph recently which was it in arizona or new mexico or utah i remember photographing a skink that only had front I legs know. only front legs i'm sure it only had front legs where's your photo i'll have to go i'll have to go back through my photos i don't remember that, that. it might not i certainly in the last year, I've photographed something. It might have been it might have been a skink with only hind legs going backwards. <laughs> ah, yes, that could have been it. No, I've, I'm sure we. Well, did. send that to me because I'd be very interested. No, I'll have to, it, have to check it, it out. You, I mean, one of the oddest genera is Larista in a, in a, the skink genus Larista in in um, in Australia. There are 99, um, just like red balloons. There's 99 Larista. And um, they demonstrate every possible. There's, there's, oh. the, 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 there's the pentadactyl tetrapod ones, and then there's the ones that have lost the, the front limbs and just the hind limbs, and then there's some that have just got a stylus as a hind limb, like a little sharp stylus, which is what they call it when there's just that little pointy bit. Mm -hmm. Some have just got stubs. Some have got no limbs at all. You can actually look at the whole history of the trend towards um, limb loss and body elongation in one genus. That's amazing. 
Yeah. Very cool. Oh, super cool. And there is I... nightmare to identify. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. When I find my Florida worm lizard, I will be sure to send you photos, sir. You had better. Along with that t-shirt, you I know, I know my, my t-shirt guy dropped the ball. So Nipper and I are actually gonna plan on trying to get some uh, uh online store stuff up and running. So once I do that, I'll be sending you a care package in no time. Oh, you're very kind. You're, Dirt you're snake mafia. Kind. <laughs> so do we want to continue from I our tour as, yeah where yeah. were we where did as, we leave off as i'm not going to get to go out herping now this this is i have no herping trips planned for the rest of the year which is disastrous well there ain't but, much left of the year there's enough um so i'm not looking at going herping again until january which is rubbish so i think i should live vicariously through mark's adventures in various hot places because yes it genuinely ha i don't know what it's like where you are mark here uh in essex it has not stopped raining for about a week it is i've just... got a hole in the roof right above my computers here <laughs> it's and just... i've got a bucket up there and it's catching the water and every so often i go and siphon the water off um, <laughs> it's been because, great yeah it's it's yeah it's Absolutely crazy we've got a lot of rain so, if my memory serves me correctly, and I have got a little note in my phone because I'm old and I forget stuff. So, we looked at, or you, you spoke at before, we did the Americas, and we did a bit of Europe, and we did the Indian subcontinent, and then we were just getting on to, you briefly mentioned Africa, but we didn't really delve mm -hmm. much into Africa. So, do you want to start off with Africa? Well, if they think which countries I've been in in Africa, I've been in Morocco, um, Mauritania, Senegal, Cameroon, Tanzania, Zambia, Namibia, South Africa. So I think that's it. So take your pick. Okay. Well, let's start with Morocco because it's one of my favourite. Right. Maybe. Well, Morocco, we bombed. I went there with Dave Nixon. Oh, okay. He'd had a lot of success when he'd been there, you know, the Cobras and everything. Went over. We only had a um, 10 days or something. And it's probably one of the least successful herp trips I've made. Um, but you have to have unsuccessful herp trips. You do. We do. To appreciate the successful herp trips. Yes. Success and failure are two sides of the same coin. And to appreciate the one, you have to taste the other. Yeah, 100%. So, you know. And that's what you have to tell yourself repeatedly. Um, yeah. yeah, we I think we we caught it snake wise. I mean, we 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 got chameleons and and skinks and so forth. But you always being snake guys, you sort of count the trips by the snakes you find. And we had a juvenile Montpellier and a run over. Let's get desperate if that's no, my, if you're talking DORs, yeah. <laughs> Um, egg eater, and which I was disappointed to find out was just scabber in the end rather than the, 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 the local species, it's anonymized. And then, um, Dave missed a racer of some kind, which really didn't get a good enough look at, so it, was, it really didn't work. Um, and I would like to go back because for me, Morocco's unfinished business, because sure. you know, it's, it's it's the nearest cobra to Europe. It's the nearest puff adder to Europe. You know, it's the, it's a, it might well be the nearest Equis to Europe. So it's sort of like, yeah, you want to go and find these. And, and 
just haven't had another chance. Uh, the most memorable thing about there being the fact that the, the guy in the airport confiscated all my AA batteries, all my alkaline batteries, really? despite the fact that they were not lithium ion. I tried to explain to him, but he wasn't interested because he needed batteries. <laughs> and, yeah, obviously. So yeah. he confiscated all those. So, you know, now that I use any loop and they're bloody expensive, nobody's taking those off me. I had a big argument in Dubai about that when they were going to confiscate all my, I said, nickel metal hydride. It's not lithium. You can't take these on the plane. Yes, I can. And I spoke to the airline. They let me on with them. You know, they're going to confiscate 200 quid's worth of nickel metal hydride every trip. Yeah, I'm doing that. Any loop battery. So I, I don't use alkaline at all now. But that was bloody annoying, that was. Because then you've got to go and buy batteries in the local shop uh, where yeah. they've been sitting in the window frying. <laughs> uh, so well, if you Morocco, had, yeah, I was going to say, if you want to get out of Morocco, just go south. We'll do Mauritania. We'll just start getting better. better Mauritania, <laughs> yeah, Mauritania was really interesting. Um, I mean, Morocco, we're in the, we're on the to the northern edge of the Sahara. Well, of course, when we're down in Mauritania, we're, we're down in the southern of the Sahara. Um, in the Tagent region, in Matmata, looking for um, the desert crocodile, which is northwestern, uh, northwest African crocodile, which is now, uh, it was a subspecies of Nolotikus, um, Suchus, it's now a full species. And I was there making a film for the final series of Big Adventure with um, Hemo Nickel, who was one of the team, along with Tara Shine, and, and the rest who'd, who'd been doing some work on them. And we weren't there at the best time because the, the adults were largely yes, estivating in holes. Um, you could see the holes, but there's no way you were going to get crocs out of, out of there. We did see crocodiles in one very large... Um, uh, there's, I mean, it's a dry waterbed with dried waterfalls, big pools at the bottom, big oasis, if you like, and then... There's crocs in there basking on the rocks. You can't get anywhere near them. Um, and it's like the, 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 the oases are like pearls all the way down. We flew up the valley and you're thinking, that's worth a look. That's worth a look. That's worth a look. And they are. They're just like pearls, which when you get the, the, the rain come through, the whole thing fills up and it, and it washes the crocs downstream. Well, we did have this one place where, where it was it had stayed very wet because of this quite big oasis at the bottom of a waterfall. And, and there were some decent-sized crocs there, but you couldn't get close enough to really do much. Um, so we wanted to we, – we, we were setting sort of um, live-catching traps and baiting them, things like this, further upstream, and that didn't work. Um, and then we did encounter a, a croc – which gave us gave us the uh, the slip several times. We we're wading, and it wasn't a very big one, but it got past us every time we attempted to get near it. But Hemo did catch one in the end, a small one. He said, "Oh, it's a croc! It's a croc!" He said, "Shall I catch it?" I said, "Catch it!" He said, "Aren't you?" But no, don't. I don't care who catches the things. It's not a. This isn't a. You know, yeah. put the animal in front of me, and I'll pick it up and look brilliant. Sort of show. I don't mind who catches it, so long as we get it. I remember watching the you guys go back and forth. I remember that. Oh yeah, we, we, it was a, it was a really nice area to to um, to herp in, um, but it was very dry, and that we were 
quite limited. I mean, we had a big, uh, big um, Sorcata tortoise. Was it Sorcata? I think it was. And there were a number of other things, but um, Hemo caught some um, Ekis before he joined us, and he got he got those. So I was quite keen to Luca Gaster. The, yeah. the, oh, okay. the I was quite pleased to photograph those, but I didn't I didn't find those. Um, any yeah, any Taboya out there? And Taboya. Yeah. Well, Desertica or Des Mauritanica? You mean? No. Yeah. No. 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 Not not a sniff. Um, I did learn to ride a camel. <laughs> That's awesome. I had to ride a camel out of a mirage. Yes, that was That's incredible. That That's that, that right there is worth the trip. Well, it, well, yes. Well, I've ridden some pretty unusual animals when I've been. I mean, I, I I rode. I've ridden elephants in Nepal and in India. In India, I rode an elephant in Jaipur, and it caused a traffic smash. <laughs> The guy is looking at this white guy in the elephant and he drove into a guy in a motorcycle. Um, so, yeah. Um, and and I've, I, they gave me water buffaloes in um, in Brazil and the Philippines. So, yeah, I've had some unusual modes of transport. Yeah. I didn't get on with the horses they gave me in Brazil first. So, so they gave me a water buffalo, which was better because you could put more kit on it. There's a lot more space. That's you great. Know. That's awesome. But no, I'm trying to think highlights of Mauritania, apart from finally finding a crop. I think it was just the habitat. I mean, it's such an ancient habitat. And quite unusually, we <clears throat> we were we were up on a, a really barren rocky area, they were like a, a Marscape, and there were there were like not houses, but clearly some sort of building made out of stones. And I asked what they were, and they said they're grain houses grain houses they these all you can see is rock and sand in every direction and these are grain houses but the point is that rather like rainforests swell and shrink um so do deserts and the sahara has been a lot smaller than it is now and at that time um people had arable fields there and they would be harvesting grain and they'd be storing it in these grain houses. But since then, which we're probably going, I don't know how far we're going back there. You'd have to ask, ask an anthropologist that. Or, but we're going back. Now, of course, the desert is, is expanding again. And so th there's, there's no chance of irrigation and farming there now, agriculture there now. So, you know, Sahara hasn't always, isn't always the same size as it is now. And it's expanding. We went down into... Because it was a film about crocs. We went down into Senegal, to the Senegal River. And I was going to look for crocs there as well. And there were a couple of crocs that had been released by the Senegal Zoo. And I think that started a population. So I went looking for those. I was wading around in the swamps in, um, in the Senegal River. And um, I got malaria again. So that was, I came back. When I got home, I was like... Um, Medivac, because it was a bad malaria. It wasn't. It wasn't South Asian malaria. The doctor said when I went to the hospital with malaria, he said, "Oh, I, I treat malaria all the time. I'll get you sorted." And I thought, mm, "Okay, which malaria do you treat? Because this is from West Africa, and you're normally treating Indian subcontinent." Yeah. And, uh, yeah. By the Monday, I was I was pretty ill, 
and they they put me in a blue lighting ambulance and sent me down to hospital tropical diseases in london and i was in there a week and uh, yeah yeah i feel your pain i've had very bad malaria i had to take i was ruined absolutely well, yeah ruined. And I, I ended up having three months off work i was just Bloody hell that was bad I haven't yeah. had that, and I've had malaria now six times from five. Oh my goodness, no! I've had it once. You, I, I wonder if that was falciparum because that—that's the I've, one. There was um, that I almost fear to mention the program, but I will. Jim will fix it. Oh my days! <laughs> you can't mention that these days. <laughs> but there was a cameraman working on on fixing something for that, and he was filming in West Africa. And he got falciparum malaria oh. and he died on the Christmas day oh. because that's the one that kills people. And of course, in, in our own field, in John Thornby Anson, the crocodile expert, he got malaria yeah. and he died. Sad, you know. Yeah. It was I, I, I was, I was amazed at the effects in terms of how much weight I lost so quickly and just the. Even when I got over, when I was back in England, because um, it came out, I think I got it in Malaysia, but mm. it came out when I was in Borneo. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't fly home from Borneo, for, uh, so I had to stay out in Borneo for a little while. And then when I came home to the UK, I just, I had, it was like long COVID. I had no energy or it was horrific. It took me yeah, a long while I... to, to feel strong again. I've I've been knocked back by tropical diseases like that. I, I got something in Papua New Guinea in 1986, and I came back. And like 1986, I was I was young, um, but I was like young. a 70 year old man, and I, yeah. I couldn't walk up the stairs without help. Yeah. I couldn't sleep lying down. I'd got no energy, and for about a month, it hammered me. And I went to see a consultant in London in Harley Street, and. He had no idea what I'd got, but they x-rayed me. And in one x-ray, there was this, what I can only, only say was like a cigarillo in the top of my trachea. Oh. And the next x-ray had gone. And I think I'd got a lungworm. All oh, right, yeah. Um, and that it had exited <laughs> up the trachea and down, down the esophagus. Oh, my days. But, and, and, but I recovered quite rapidly after that. But for a month, you know, I was frail. Yeah. That's um, but, yeah, I've, I've, I've been – I got malaria in 1989 in Cameroon and onchocerciasis, river blindness. Oh, my God. Which took 15 months to diagnose and three months to treat with heavy doses of ivermectin. Right. Um, but I, 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 I was – I'd flown back from Cameroon four months in Cameroon, I think on the Monday – and when I'd arrived, I'd been asked to do an interview for a magazine. I'd done the interview and they said, did you, did you catch any tropical disease? And they said, no, some, some of my friends got malaria, but I was fine. Wednesday, I went down with malaria. Friday, I flew to Brazil oh to speak God. at a conference. And I'd got a, a Varig Air Pass, which was you paid $200 and you could fly anywhere in Brazil for a month. Right. I stayed a week. I did the conference. I stayed a week. I thought, you know, it's like staying up and watching something on TV. You really want to see, but you've got a blinding headache and you just yeah. know that it's not going, you're not going to enjoy it. 
Yeah, and I know. Just look, this this is this is crazy. I'm not going to enjoy travelling around Brazil for for a month, the way I feel. Yeah. Um, and so I went home, and I, think, I ended up in tropical hospital disease tropical hospital for tropical diseases again. They must love you there. You're a regular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's yes, something that a lot of people don't take into account when you're herping in foreign countries. Tropical it's disease. Not, yeah. How dangerous it can be in terms of your health when you, you know, when you come back. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Um last time I was in was it last time I was in PNG, I I was diagnosed. They said you got malaria, and I thought, no, I haven't. I know malaria. I know malaria like an old girlfriend. I recognise its touch, you know? Yeah. And I thought, this isn't malaria. Anyway, um, I, I went with the flow, what the doctor had said, and he gave me these Chinese tablets. She gave me these Chinese tablets to take. And I was due to take the last one. And I was staying in a village, a rural village, and they'd built me rustic sort of lab where I, I lived and worked. I just slept on the ground next to the generator on my table and all that. And I was seventh heaven there. But I woke I woke up the, the morning and I thought, I've got to take the last of those horrible Chinese tablets. I can't remember the name. It's a common Chinese treatment for malaria. You know, I took the tablet and I looked around, got tablets in my mouth, looked around for water. There wasn't any water. And I thought, well, I haven't got time to go and sterilise any water. So, I looked, And there was a half a stubby of beer from the night before. So that'll do. Neck that. And and three minutes later, my eye went and filled with blood. I had a, um, a vitreous hemorrhage in that eye. And I couldn't see out of that eye. And I'm driving jungle tracks with Papun working with me as chewing boo eye and laughing like a banshee. The eye is a kite. And I'm trying to drive along jungle tracks with drop-offs into rivers with no vision out to the right side. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Wow. But, but I was pretty sure that I hadn't had malaria. And when I got back, I got checked and I was like, oh, no, 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 you've had dengue. All uh, right, yeah. And apparently I'd, wow. I've, I'd, I'd, I'd had a dengue twice. I've had dengue twice now, apparently. Um, and I thought, I knew it wasn't malaria. Um, yeah, and last time in, in when I was in Timor, I'm jumping ahead here, but it, I suppose it doesn't matter. It's I was in Timor on, on one of the projects we we're doing there, and I'd climbed down into some caves, um, where the, the Timorese had been fighting the Indonesians when they're striving for independence. And I was down in these caves with, uh, with our Timorese students, um. And we've got to find a way for the American students to come in. So we're walking over these guano beds and I'm just talking to the Timorese lads and I've got my mouth open when a bat flew over and took a piss. <laughs> no. And this spray, acrid spray, just hit me full in the face. Wow. Because I was talking, it went in my mouth and, oh. you know, and so I had a swig of water and spat that out and, didn't think any more to it. And then over the next, I don't know, three, four, five days, I gradually went downhill. And I ended up, I couldn't get out of my cot. I got a temperature of 103. And I was just lying there. And I basically lost a day and a half. I don't remember any of it. I just was just so feverish. 
And it's possible I had something like, um, not wheels dizzy, um, leptospirosis or something like that. All right, yeah. But as luck would have it, the anti-malarial prophylaxis I was taking was doxycycline, which is an antibiotic, which is what I take now. I mean, I've been through all the anti-malarials because I was doing so many expeditions during the 80s and 90s. I was never really off anti-malarials. I've just finished the course and I've been starting another one. Mm -hmm. And I've done all the ones that people had chloroquine and paladrin and, and all of these and the ones the ones that give you mouth ulcers. So you stop taking them. You think the malaria is not as bad as the mouth ulcers. And I'd, I'd had larium, which I'd helped advertise. That's the one that sends you doolally, sends you loopy. Um, I'd, I'd had that twice. The first time, no problems. The next time, I was suspicious of everybody. So <laughs> I'd, I'd quit that one. So found doxycycline, and that was great. And it just so happens that doxycycline is what they, they treat leptospirosis right. with. So I was already oh. taking the thing I needed to cure me, which was bloody lucky. That was lucky. From anywhere. And I'm, I'm just washed out, you know. Jesus. Oh. Yeah, tropical diseases are very, very interesting. They are. I studied them when I did my BSc, and um, people don't appreciate that in this day and age, they, they, they can still put you on your back. 100%. They can put you in a hole. It's amazing we've made it this far, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I mean, if you think about the advent of all, all these diseases now, I mean, Zika's not that, not that long ago. And there are four human malarias, right, of which falciparum is a serious one. You've got uh, 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 plasmodium malaria, plasmodium ovale, plasmodium vivax, plasmodium falciparum. And now there's um, plasmodium noxii, which I think is noxii, and that's a simian one. That's a monkey mal malaria that's crossed the species boundary into humans. Wow. A bit like... There's talk about COVID having crossed the species barrier yeah. and possibly SARS and things like this. So things are now able to, to do this. And the, 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 so there's always an increasing threat. And with malaria, we're, we're running out of ways to deal with it. Yeah. You know, but they have now got, um, they've come out with a, a possible inoculation, which, which might, work immunize people against malaria and that'd be great because malaria kills over two million a year 100 percent, yeah and they're mostly children in sub-saharan africa and you you know it doesn't take long for malaria to kill children no. and you know so so um it is it is it's one of the major curses but that get rid of that one something else will come along you know it's something will fill the void something for the vacuum Let's get back onto a, let's get back onto a happier note because while uh, yeah we've put everybody off their dinner now talking about various diseases that you've encountered, um, snakes of Africa still we're still on Africa. Yes, we are venomous snakes of Africa that you found. Cameroon was when I was in Cameroon in 1989. I caught a lot of snakes. <clears throat> the best specimen I caught was obviously the big forest cobra, um, and. Um, I, I, I was, it was in an oil palm and I, I saw this cobra come down a tree, down a palm tree and head for this hole. And it was going down the hole when I managed to get to the tail and pull it back out and get the tongs to it and 
safely catch it and, and took it into camp. And um, I kept it for, for a while because a lot of people wanted to see it. It was a big Operation Raleigh expedition. And there were people on the other camps who'd want to come and see. So I was finding myself having to do demos with this Cobra most days because, like, all the WWF people turned up to see it. Uh, the local school wanted to see it, so I get the Cobra and get it hood in and so forth. Um, the, the gendarmerie, they turned up to see it. Um, the, the local general came with some of his... Um, some of his aide-de-camp, some of his senior officers. He was he was an uh, army general, and he was amazed by this cobra, and I put it away. And he conspiratorially put his arm around my shoulder and walked me away from the group. And he said, um, can you turn into a snake? <laughs> and I said, no, no, of course not. And he said, oh. He said, I have friends who turn into animals. Oh. Which for an African general is probably saying more than he wanted to say. Yeah. yeah. Some yeah. of the stuff that's gone on in the Congo and things like that, you know, is yeah. some of some of these warlords. Yeah. I have like, friends that turn into animals after yeah. too many stellars, but well, that's wife Peter, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're not the same yes. Thing. But that was very, he seriously, seriously thought I could turn into a snake, which is a, in Papua New Guinea as well, I think that. You so um, should have said yes. Yeah, I could have, had, I could have said, but I won't if you give yeah. me, give yes. me one of your tanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we, we used to, I had a really good team of young venturers, Operation Raleigh venturers, many nationalities. Um, there were a couple of there were a couple of Cameroonian guys on the team, and they got fantastic names: Esong Boniface and Boomer Alfred. I mean, what great names! <laughs> I mean, Esong awesome. Boniface. I mean, they they could almost be Chicago hoodlums. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> great names, but they were fantastic guys, and they they were learning from me. And and after I'd left, Cameroon was back. Esong had gone to college and, and he sent me a picture and a letter and he'd, he'd, been, he'd caught a cobra in the school grounds and been demonstrating it and all the girls thought he was marvellous. Now, I wrote back and said, look, you're not magic. <laughs> don't, don't risk it, really. Yeah. Because he thought if I could do it, he could do it. And, but we, we did, we, what we used to do in the evening, there was a, there was a bar um, in um, the plantation and it was some distance and so we would herp our way to the bar and then herp our way back again after a few jars and um, it, there was one time we were in the bar <clears throat> and I got an Italian venture and he came running back into, into, into the bar he said they found a snake, they found a snake it's up the road so we those myself and my lad, the guys who were really around me, we just ran out now and I shouted to grab all the snake catching equipment. So people are gathering all that and they're following on behind. And he said it was only up the road a short way. It's not when you've had a couple of beers, running isn't the best thing. <laughs> no. You get a stitch very quickly. Yeah. But we had to yeah. run. 
And when we got there, we didn't need to have run because one of the, it was another group of our venturers. These are 17 to 23 year old people who'd come on the expedition to learn new skills and everything. One of them who, it wasn't from my team, but I knew I wanted snakes, had had the good sense to take off his T-shirt and throw it over the snake. So it's, there's a T-shirt on the road with bricks in the corners and the snakes underneath. So, you know, we uh, we didn't need to run. But the snake catching equipment didn't turn up. So I said, well, we'll get to see what it is. We'll get the, the T-shirt off. And there was a Tractaspis corpulenta. Wow. A nice, nice looking snake. Nothing Very like, cool. How am I going to catch that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because I don't have anything to pin it or anything like that. And walking along the road was one of the um, other scientists who was catching moths, and he got a moth net. You know, the <laughs> moth yeah, net. yeah. So the, yeah. <laughs> give me that. Give me that. And I thought, what I'll do, I'll flick it into the net, but I need to. I need to try and pin it to flick it. And, of course, you can't pick it up behind that. So I thought maybe if I press it down on top of the head. Oh, God. Well, no, you're shaking your head and you're quite right. Because he I just know. stitched that. Uh, he got me. Still got into the net. Did he do the classic pinwheel flip in the air thing? It was a bit like that. But it all happened yeah. so fast. All I knew oh, was yeah. he tagged me. But I got it into the net. And... We're still like two kilometers from camp. Oh, jeez! So I got in the net and started started to um, to walk back to camp. Was there Whereupon, any any initial pain? No, nothing at all. No. Did um, it bleed initially? There, there was no pain, and at that point, we we'd got Cameroonian army support. We've got a group of Cameroonian soldiers led by a sergeant who drove everywhere in a Cameroonian army ambulance. And they happened to turn up and somebody said, oh, Mark's been bitten. So they said, we'll give you a lift back to the camp. So I said, thank guys. So I'm getting in. They said, no, you can leave the snake. And I said, I'll walk. I'm not chucking the snake. So they had a quick chat. They said, OK. You can bring it, but you've got to keep it out of the window. So all the way back, I'm holding the, the moss net, butterfly awesome. net or whatever it was, <laughs> with the stiletto with the atract aspis in it, out of yeah. the window of the ambulance until it got <sighs> back. And it was quite late and a lot of people had gone to bed. And we got we'd got like eight nurses and four doctors because we were doing a lot of work with Sea International, cataract removals and things like that. And somebody said, do you want me to wake wake up the medical crew? And I said, no, I feel fine. I don't want to, you know, let them be. And when, when I bedded down, we're all sleeping in lines under mosquito nets. And I just said to the guy next to me, an American, I said, look, if I wake you in the night and say, get me some medical attention, I want you to wake one of the doctors, but with minimum disturbance to everyone else. And he says, okay. And I went to sleep. And next morning I woke up and it was fine. And I had I had no effects from that snake at all. Um, and having subsequently got bitten 
by Bibran Stiletto Snake in South Africa when I received three bites, and it wasn't actually my fault. It was on, the, it was on camera, almost on camera. Um, and people said, oh, you, what are you doing? Pick the late Donald Stradham had said, had woken me up. I was asleep in the vehicle when he braked and said, snake. He says, Cape Wolf snake, I'll get a bag. Oh, so geez. I bailed out and it wasn't, was it? No. In the darkness, I went to pick up a Cape, a Cape Wolf snake. Oh. And it wasn't. I thought, that's not Cape Wolf snake. And I'd worked out what it was by the time he came back with a bag and a torch. And I got it. But it had bitten me. And it had rolled over my hands. He'd done that, that flicking oak. And he'd bit me in the right hand and then twice in the left hand. Oh, my God. And the back of the hand. And the point was that the, the order that they, that the severity of them was one, two, three, with the third the worst. And if you think about this, they're not erecting fangs. So they may not have that muscular sort of like squeezing of the glands to pump the venom and things like that. If they are simply stabbing you backwards with the fang, it may take a bit of, it may take one or two stabs to actually get the venom on the go and actually get venom into the wound. Yeah. It might be that that if you get stabbed once and it's it's just a jabbing bite, that it might be dry. Because if you think about what they did, the way they hunt, snake like that can't open its mouth to strike something underground so it's it's a it's a sideways stab it's a way a venomous snake would hunt a sideways stab flick the fang out give it a jab and more than one jab bang 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 you know in the same way there's something like an indigo snake which in the open would constrict something crushes prey against the tunnel walls it's in a confined space that's the only way you can apply constriction because right, you can't right. properly coil around something. There isn't room. Yeah. And so it may well be that it takes a moment or two and a couple of jabs before the venom actually is going down the fang. And that, that I I'm, I'm think that that bite I had from the corpulenta, which was one fang, one stab, was probably dry, simply because the the... There was no erecting of the fangs, opening of the mouth, and and constriction of of the of the venom glands with the muscles to start the process. And so, and when I got the bite from the bang bang bang, the right hand healed up first. The number two bite on the left hand was the next, and, and the one that gave me most trouble over the three or four days it took was the third one. So, so what? What were the symptoms? What were the systematics and stuff? Cough, which of the the bibrinai. Yeah. Well, I went to the hospital first, and the director. It was it was like um, up in Zululand, not in no Zululand, up in um, Transvaal. Went to a military hospital, and I my hands were swollen and painful, and I walked into the hospital. This is probably early hours of the morning or something silly. And I opened the door, the doors with my elbows because I couldn't touch anything because my hands hurt like blazes. They were really, really painful. Um, and these two black security guards jumped up in these darkened corridors, and they then they, they saw me, and quite obviously, I was in pain. Therefore, I was a patient. And the director, who happened to be with us, when when Donald died, we're just going back to pick up his notes. He left them at where we'd been filming 
during the afternoon and he'd just follow this another vehicle in case there was a story. And as it happens, there was. Um, and he, he followed me in with video camera to his eye. And then the security guards are going to stop him. And I said, oh, no, he's my biographer. He follows me <laughs> everywhere. He stepped back and they let him in. Nice. I nice. understood what I'd said, but I just basically said, yeah, he's fine. And he followed me in. And I was treated by a Cuban doctor. Um, there's a lot of Cuban doctors um, work, working in South Africa. And he wanted to use cryotherapy. Pack my hands with ice. Wow. We're going, hang wow. on, no, that's that that that's that's pretty medieval. We don't need to do that. That's if you do that, my circulation's probably not great. And if you do that, I may I may lose fingers, you know. And he's saying, Well, if you don't do that, you will lose fingers. This is the treatment. I'm going, no, it isn't the treatment for snake bite. And I'm thinking, I'm British, we have Viper Aberus, you're Cuban, you haven't got any front fangs, I outrank you. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. Right? You you don't know that snake bite. And he's making out that this is what he always does. No, 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 no. And and in the end, in I got a lot of flack in in in, in the pro of the program for taking my discharge from the hospital. And people were saying shouldn't have done that. It was very silly. That was really wrong. No, no, it was the only option because he basically said, if you're not gonna have my treatment, get out of my hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, fine, just give me some painkillers. So that's what he did. And we left. And um, I'm lying down. Now I'm in the back of the vehicle. That, that um, I'm in the back of the, the, the crew bus that the director's driving. And we're heading back to where we're staying. And I'm lying down. And I'm having a pretty rough time of it. My hands hurt like bilio. And, and I thought, I need to sit up. I just didn't feel well. I needed to be sitting up. So I sat up, or I thought I'd sat up. And I realized I was still lying down. I'd only sat up in my mind. Wow. So I thought, I need to sit up. I don't feel well lying down. So I sat up. And then I realized, again, I hadn't sat up. I was still lying down. So I, what I had to do was actually cause myself some pain by pressing on my worst hand, cause myself pain. So I knew I was conscious and, and I was sitting up and I made myself sit up and I was sitting up. And I knew I was sitting up because I looked out of the, the, the minibus window and the road ahead was covered in dustbin lid, trash can lid size, pink and yellow, multi-legged spider octopuses. <laughs> they were just going around like on a bloody computer game. Oh, my gosh. Thinking, what the? What? And I thought, I think I'll lie down. I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I was seeing. And I needed to stop. Um, I needed to stop for a piss and I could hardly stand up and I'm outside the vehicle and, the, and I'm trying to piss into the, into the vegetation and the director's having to hold on to the back of the seat of my pants to stop me pitching forwards. Yeah. So it really knocked the stuffing out of me. And obviously 
I got a night's sleep and I felt better in myself after that. But I couldn't do anything film-wise or anything because my hands were like catcher's gloves and they were painful yeah. to look at, let alone touch. Oh, yeah. And so it was decided I wouldn't do any snake handling or anything for three days. And I'm just trying to get my hands back to normal by flexing my fingers once they don't hurt so much because the skin felt like it was been stretched over a drum. Oh, yeah. And then um, Donald said to me, well, I want you to demonstrate you've got your strength back in your hands. So I had to sort of squeeze his hand to show that I got the strength back in my hands. Boy, I was, it, that hurt me, but I didn't let him know it hurt me because I'm trying to hurt him by squeezing yeah. his hand. Yeah. I've got the strength back. But yeah, it, it took it took three or four days, and before I was wow. back and no necrosis but, yeah. at all. No, wow. No, no cryotherapy, no necrosis. I think I would have had a problem if I'd let them pack my hands with ice. I'm not. Yeah. You know, there's so many yeah. ridiculous methods of treating snake bites, and I wasn't going down that road. And yet you still love dirt snakes. I don't get it. Oh, oh, they're yeah. amazing. And oh, it's yeah. it's so fascinating to me that you mentioned the the three individual stabs and the third one being the worst. The worst. And possibly the, the corpulenta didn't give you an actual dry biter. <laughs> because I watch my specimens, and especially the ones that are vivacious eaters, and I will notice that they you know they do the arching of the neck they they bow, yeah, yeah, yeah. they bow the nape of their neck to as a threat display and especially the uh, um irregularis that i have they do that pecking thing right and i've noticed that if they stab a prey item before the arching of the nape it almost has no effect and it started to make me think that maybe that because if you look at the skeletal structure, you know, uh, Tra Dr. Travis Wyman, our good friend who, who does a lot of stuff on the podcast with us, he sent me a bunch of uh, CAD, uh, not CAD, excuse me. Um, uh, I'm going to say CAT scan imagery or maybe it's MRI yeah, yeah, imagery yeah. of the skull and how the atrothaspis fangs actually lay and almost point back upward because of the length of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And it made me think, well, maybe this delivery system is almost like a fountain pen. You know, you kind of give, give it a little shake. And it slowly starts to bead or slowly starts to pool. And I'm wondering if that's maybe why where I see the specimen initially stab, maybe out of a reflex, maybe out of defense, the prey item, and it doesn't do anything. And then once it sees me or sees the prey item and it arches its, its nape up and gives the threat posture, now the now the, the, the pooling or maybe gravity is taking effect. Maybe I'm going out of my head on this one. But no, no, but so maybe, maybe there's yeah. some muscular, muscular, maybe that arching yeah. of the neck. That, that that's causing some muscular con, constriction on on the on on the glands or something like that yeah especially being because, such a long glanded species yeah 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 i did the could the it could actually be facilitating the the movement of, because i don't know if if atractaspids um are able to have reservoirs you know because because elapids and viperids they 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 have reservoirs. They can build up a supply of venom. Whereas, as best of my knowledge, most of the the, the rear fangs with duvenoid glands, one of the things is they don't have reservoirs. So if it's not used, it's lost. And so their yields are often not large. Um, be, but I wonder where the atract aspids fit in this. Whether whether they have reservoirs or whether 
whether they need muscular contraction to 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 start the venom on its way because you can you can sort of see it in in a snake that opens his mouth to strike the whole thing it's a very muscular process and and that whole and and the snake knows it's about to strike something you know it's almost like pavlov's dog sort of salivating you know it's it, i wonder if they need some that little bit extra to start the venom on its way It'd be interesting to know how many people who've been jabbed once have had zero effect. Whether whether the yeah. one jab, because if they don't have if they don't have reservoirs, um, they don't want to waste their venom defensively. And if they're hunting in a burrow, they've got time. The prey's going nowhere. They've got time to jab it half a dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. If they want to eat it, but if they if it's just a warning, sure, they can leave me alone. And I, and I imagine that I imagine that because of the fang structure and because of the fossorial subterranean lifestyle that they live, it would not shock me if there's very little venom residue. You know, where you hear of like people that get bit by a crotalid and they get a dry bite, there was no venom actually injected. However, there was some kind of residue residue in the in the duct or in the fang or what have you and it gave them just enough to get a a clinical reaction but not enough to yeah. even maybe yeah. merit antivenin yeah 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 well there are lots of dry bites the trouble is you don't know at the yeah. time yeah. you treat every bite as a medical emergency if it's from a serious serious species yeah um you're foolish not to because it's a bit late going well actual fact i thought it wasn't very bad but it clearly is bit late then so yeah but they are interesting they are interesting snakes and somebody nudge nudge nipper and wake him up no oh, sorry have you, have, you, have you finished talking about your dirt stuff i mean yeah phil has well, got some lovely snakes because I, I i was fortunate enough when i was in florida to see his collection um one of the the standout things in his collection is his um puff adders uh, I presume you've seen lots of puff adders in the wild. Seen a fair few, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember a big, a big one in Zam in Zambia on Lake Tanganyika, an enormous puff adder, and I was trying to catch it, and it had gone under a rock, and I couldn't catch it because all the Africans there were all trying to stand on the rock to get off the ground. It was a big snake, and oh, I wanted to find that. It was humongous. I did get a decent size puffy there, but but that was a lot bigger. Just moving through the grass like a python, you know. Wow! And it just disappeared. Awesome. Just That's disappeared. Incredible. Yeah, I've seen seen some nice puff adders. And very cool. the late the late um, Tony Phelps when he was working on the Whoop Reserve, looking at uh, I think they were the British Ruby uh, Ruby the red adders down there. Um, there's a whale watching point down at the bottom of this reserve and people drive very fast down there on the dirt road. And he, he was there the one time and he witnessed some people in a very shiny SUV, obviously interested in wildlife and, you know, wanted to see the whales. Um, and they're driving so fast that this big puff adder that's moving slowly across the road didn't have a chance. They went over this thing, churned it up. 
and he was really annoyed about this. So he gathered up the corpse and he followed them and they'd got down to the car park with their shiny SUV to watch whales, the whole family, and we're going to see whales, you know, oh, what good eco people we are. And, uh, and he arrived behind and he got out of his scummy backy because he had a scummy backy. That's a, a ute or a pickup in South Africa. It's a backy. And he got this dead puff out of that he picked up off the road. And he walked over to this shiny SUV and he thumped the carcass down on the bonnet and said, wow. you did that and stalked off. <laughs> oh, jeez. I mean, I, I felt mean, his pain. I felt his yeah, pain. Yeah, they're terrible. I mean, they just drove over it. They didn't even try to stop because they got to see the whales. Yeah. They're animal lovers, you see. Exactly. The mammals always win out, unfortunately. Yeah, it's the cute yeah. and cuddly yeah. theory, right? Cute and cuddly, yeah. yeah. Even yeah. the ones which don't have limbs. Yeah. yeah. Um. So... Yeah. Talking of bitters, have you seen many of the dwarf adders? No, not a lot of them. No, I, I've been in the area um, where they were, but really Cornuta and Cordalis. I've not seen Zerapega, uh, Schneideri, um, Peringuea in the wild, Peringuea in the wild. No, um, they are hard to find. We spent a lot of time up in Namaqualand, and we've got a good team up there. Um, Gorgeous Tony Phelps was with us, and Wolfgang Wuster, and Mike Doby, who's made quite a name for himself as a, a very good photographer. He's done some of the, the books for um, Chimera, you know, the terror logs. We got a good team up there, and we worked. We worked really hard to try and find. No, we we just um, we got a was it Cordalis there on a rubbish dump. Um. There, yeah, you and, and and of course, some of them are getting collected. You know, people told us, Oh, yeah, there was somebody comes down and comes down from Johannesburg and he he pays people for them. So, you know, I, I'm in my opinion, if you really are a herp lover, you wouldn't go and collect species and help in pushing them to extinction. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I know you've. You go to the ham shows because I've, I've, I've talked to you at the ham shows, but um, every pretty much every species of bitis is available in the venomous. I species. know, I know, and and it's when they're only available then and not not in the wild anymore. That'll be a sad state yeah. of affairs. I'm all for captive captive care of, of herbs. You know, I used to keep lots of herbs. I don't keep any now. I'm not saying don't keep them, but I I just feel that sometimes the desire to own something that's exceedingly rare overrides the concern for the species. Yeah. And, you know, we'll all be dead and gone. And it would be nice to know that that species is still crawling around in its home range. 100%, yeah. I, I, I couldn't, you know, collect something um, that, that I thought was on the brink. No. I, I just would much rather see it crawling away having got some really good photographs thank you very yeah. much yeah. I mean, it, it, it's like i mean uh, vipira wasler basler however you want to say it although it's now subspecies or is it a species at all um the amount of people that went to collect that from the tiny little valley that it's in in europe 
Mm. You know, mm. they, they had to have wildlife officers 24 hours just out there just to stop people coming to collect it. it yes, yeah. and, 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 and it, it is a shame when herpers look like criminals, you yeah. know, it, that's, um, it, it, I just feel ashamed then. Yeah, 100%. You know, um, now, I would like to be able to go and find it and photograph it. And you could say we shouldn't do that because you're disturbing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I certainly wouldn't want to pick it up and take it away. No. And no. I, I mean, I, I kept lots of herbs. Um, I don't know whether I just went through that and came out the other side and thought, well, actual fact, there is there, there is a life after keeping, you know, it's not all about possession. No, um, I, I think we had this conversation quite a lot. Um, I think everybody goes through cycles and mm, I think eventually mm. as you evolve, you keep less and less and less and you herp more and more and more. Yeah. Yes, because if you've got a big collection, you you're committed to it. You yeah. can't, you you can't be going and and herpers herpers aren't as rich as birders generally, yeah. and like you know a lot of the birders they're they're they're, they're retirees and they've, they've they've got a nice nest egg and they can go off around the world three or four times a year having wonderful her, uh, birding trips, um, seeing species that they've always wanted to see, but they're not taking them home. But if you've got a private collection of something, that does eat into your budget and you haven't got the time or the money to, to go off and do trips. And I, I would rather see a rare species in the wild than own it. Um, and I'm not everybody, but I just feel it's, it's something that a lot of people who've been in herps a long time come to realise that Possession isn't everything. No, I, I completely agree. I'm much more excited now to photograph something in its natural yeah, habitat yeah. rather than have it at home. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yes. And it doesn't yeah. mean that, like myself, I don't want to speak for Nipper, but that doesn't mean we're not going to keep things. But the, No, I'm not saying no, no, yeah, no. I mean, but, yeah, but it I definitely agree. is. I, is. I, I, don't, I don't have a collection because it... it, it just sometimes I think oh, I quite fancy keeping something, and as you know, it might be burrowers, a burrowing species, or right, something right. like that. Um, I, um, I, I'd want to be, I'd want to be, to be something that I could actually learn something about, maybe get a paper out of, and just destroy sure, it. Sure. But, but I sometimes think, oh, you know, I really like. But then I think, well, yeah, but I need to be able to do this, this, and this, and this, and and. I need to be able to go away and do field work yeah. and and then I then I've got to find somebody to look after it and and so forth and you know being able to go out to these countries and and find interesting species and photograph them and come back with the memories and talk to people doing um something like this and and that means I don't want to when I when I caught that lovely king cobra, I think we talked about it last week. The, the one in the Western Ghats, the female. Yeah. Somebody said to me, "Mark, you can. We, we, here's, here's the permit. You can take that snake home with you." I just said, "No, I don't want to. I want to put her back." Yeah. Because I felt guilty. And 
you know, had come into her life and, 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 and she didn't really want to be around me. Well, she certainly didn't. And, and putting her back and watching her swim away was, for me, the best moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nipper and I just did that with the, with the Florida pine snake. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we, we got as many photos as we physically could. And when we finally started to see her get antsy and no longer tolerant of us and our, as being paparazzi, we, uh, we sat there and we videoed her off into the horizon. And that was epic. Yeah. So I know is. exactly. I know exactly yeah. how you feel. Yeah. So, Let's talk about PNG because yeah, oh, right. okay. <laughs> I, I know you can't get away with not talking about PNG. No, I know. It's my second home and uh, it's a really hard country to work in. It's quite a dangerous country to work in, but it's just magical. Um, and it, the herping is hard, you know, I remember the days in, in the 80s and, and the 90s when you could go out and road cruise and you might, in Madang, you might find five, six, seven pythons of three, four species on the road. Um, they'd be, let's see, they'd be Northern D. Albertus, um, Papuan Olive, Green Tree and... No, probably just the three then. No, amethystine, scrubbies. Um, you drive those roads now, you won't see them. All you see is Boiga regularis and steganotus. Um, it is hard work looking for snakes there. Uh, and, and, and the thing to do is to be based in one spot and really get to know that spot and find out what's there. But... I'd, I'd, I'd go back any chance I can. I, I do need to get back to New Guinea. Everybody who's worked in New Guinea admits that it gets like a drug. You sort of get withdrawal. You just want to go back and do some field work there. And there are so many areas that there's so many species that haven't been um, described. I mean, we've been working on toxic calamus now. Um, myself, Hinrich Kaiser, Fred Krauss. Um, uh chris austin and his people we've been working on 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 um toxic cameras for quite some time and in 2000 and say 2007 2008 there were eight species um there's now 24 largely because we've done a lot of museum work and some field work and we're starting to recognize the differences. And some of these species, are, you wonder how they weren't spotted before, largely because they were misidentified as other things in museum collections. But Famous. like it, Micropecus Ikahika is a snake that I've done a lot of work on. And I went to Karkar Island in 1990 to catch Micropecus. And at that time, it was considered potentially dangerous to humans. We suspected it could kill people. We didn't have any proof. There was no smoking right. gun. Yeah. And people had come into clinics and they'd, they'd, they'd said it was the white snake, what done it, Gov. Um, and they died of snake bite. Wow. So it pointed at 
Mikropekis, but we hadn't got the proof. And so in 1990, I was based up in Madang, and I went out to Karkar Island where they 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 killed some Mikropekis where they were clearing some coconut husk pile piles. So I went out and based myself there for a weekend. And um, I go out on the plantations with a team of plantation workers and we'd, we'd find the coconut husk piles. Now, coconut isn't coconut um, is harvested for copra, um, you know, um, for all sorts of uh, purposes. And they also use the, the matting in um, in composting and things like that. But the, the copra, what they what the what the plantation workers do is the coconuts when they fall out of the tree they're a bloody great big nut with a husk on it and so they stick a, a, a spike in the ground and three bangs on that with this and they'll actually take all the husk off and they throw it to one side they then crack the coconut break it into two halves pull the halves together and put it in a sack and uh, somebody who's who's done it a, a, a lot who's experienced this can can go through a lot of coconuts quite quickly and you end up with a mound of discarded coconut husks. And it's pretty spartan and nothing lives in it, really. I, d I did catch a D. Albertus python in one once that was really fresh. But that was just overnighting in there. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't going to live in there. But they go through like a succession as they begin to break down these husk piles. As they start to decompose and they start getting invertebrates. And you get everything from land crabs to giant centipedes to um, whip scorpions, um, all sorts of things living in there. And you get the herps and you get crocodile uh, skinks, you get blue tongue skinks, you get phenomorphous, the, the wedge, the wedge um, skinks, um, all living inside. You get Carlia and Amoya living on top, which are, more diurnal skinks that you see it out basking. But also inside in the snakes, you get steganotus, uh, which is ground snakes. You get uh, candoya aspera, the viper boas. They're very common in there. But what I'm after is micropecis, and they go in there and eat the other occupants. And then the, 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 to finish off with the husk pile, it goes, it further degrades and breaks down until in the end, all that's in there are aggressive ants. And so there's nothing else but ants. So you don't bother with those. So what you do when I'm working is I work, work with a group of plantation workers. We'll, we'll look for a suitable husk pile that's um, just at the right stage to be home to interesting herb fauna. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been there just long enough to be. Just long enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, what do they, um, um, the Goldilocks husk pile. Yes, like. yes. Perfect. And we'll clear all the vines off, clear all those off, and clear all escape routes around the husk pile. And then we'll settle down around this whole husk pile, which oh, it's, I don't know what, um, several tables, you know, big table, massive big round table, that sort of side. We'll, and we'll just start picking up the husks and throwing them backwards over the shoulders. And gradually we start to find things. You hear, yeah, when they found a crocodile skin, because those things, yeah, yeah, 
really loud noise yeah. for such you're, a you're talking about a triblinotus gracilis that's it gracilis yeah. love them yeah adorable and adorable they are and very unusual because they've got i mean they, they do look like crocodiles they, with with war paint on around yeah. their eyes yeah. they're really adorable but they've got strange palmar and plantar glands on the hands and feet and they've also got big abdominal gland which is like about six big scales we don't know what they're for hmm? yeah they have the no. um they have those uh the males have the glands it's almost like a it's almost like a nuptial gland in toads on yeah but he's also on his abdomen they've both got them oh, but really? they're like in, in the male on the abdomen they're very strange we don't really know what they're for um but they're a species that worries me in the trade because the female only lays one egg yeah and they don't seem to have a huge lifespan so you know, if you removed a bunch of females, you could really knock that population back. And I was, I'd been lecturing about them, and and there'd been some reptile dealers in in the in the room, and they were bringing them in and selling them. And and I felt guilty about that because I'd caused that because people hadn't heard of them before. So, but anyway, um, we gradually work our way down, and and you generally only get to see the small eyed snakes when you've nearly finished. They tend to be in the deepest, darkest parts of the husk pile, largely because they're moving away from you all the time. And then somebody will see a glimpse of white and you've got to, you've got to catch it. And they come out, they come out fighting. They, they really jump, 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 jump. They, they, they'll latch on to anything and give it a good scene to. Um, there was a, a guy, one plantation worker, not working with me, fortunately, but he got, he was, he, he disturbed one, because they come out and they cut the grass around the plantations, and, and this guy got bitten. The snake bit him on on the lower leg. Wow! And he he swung his machete and chopped the snake's head off. So he's got a head and several inches attached to him. And he hobbled to the hospital, the clinic, and he went in, and all the staff fled and left him there in a waiting room with the snake wow. attached. So this is this is yeah, Micropegius? The Micropegius, yeah. Yeah. I mean they bite and they stay bitten. Yeah. You know, um if you were to look at a, an Australian snake, they're not like tiger snakes, they're more like copperheads. I mean the Australian copperhead. They've got powerful muscular neck. You know, tiger snakes are a bit floppy really, you know, whereas the the Australian copperhead it you can it it if it if you'll put Tyrant Taylor a big Australian cobhead, and he's got his head around some tussock grass, you're going to have to pull because yeah. he's holding on. Yeah. Whereas that wouldn't be with a, a, a floppy tiger snake. Well, they're, they're like that. They're, they're, they're strong because they're, they're used to forcing their way under things. And so we're catching those. I've, 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 I caught three initially and I was back at the research institute on the mainland with them. And um, professors David Worrell and David Theakston from Oxford and Liverpool came to see me because I was working on their project. Plus, um, uh, Dr. Lalou, who's now head of the, I think he may be retiring from Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. So they all came to see me, and I'd fortunately caught these three small eyed snakes from to milk. And they were the first ones caught for any sort of venom research in 1990. And as far as I'm aware, the only person who had really done any catching of them before had been Hal Cogger when he was catching them for the Australian Museum. 
um, you know, people hadn't really zoned in on this species. And during that trip, I went back and I caught another 12. So I got quite a lot of venom from them, I was milking them. And um, the venom went back to Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, where it was compared with um, serum samples taken from snake bite victims prior to the administration of any anti-venom, Papua and snake bite victims. And it was something called enzyme-linked immune-absorbent assay. It's called ELISA. And it sort of bans out, a bit like proving parentage. You know, you've looked at chromatography and you see the bands and then that matches up that much. Well, a lot of the bites that they were looking at were from taipans and death adders, but there were one or two that wasn't clear what they were. And some of those banded out as small-eyed snakes. Wow. And some of those were fatalities. Wow. So we finally had the smoking gun. So we were yeah. able to write a paper saying, yes, this snake does kill people. But its venom's a little different from most of the others. It caused some rhabdomyolysis and things like that. And the, you can treat it with polyvalent Australopapuan antivenom. But that's very expensive and it's large volume. So if you wanted to use a monovalent, apparently it's quite similar to tiger snake. And tiger snake antivenom would work. But it's not licensed for use medically to treat snake bites it's only licensed for use experimentally which was the guy who'd done some work on these snakes there's a guy called sharky who'd lived on carker and done some work on the, on their venoms he'd been experimenting with tiger snake antivenom and that would treat the bites this they still have no specific antivenom for them it, it, in in captivity it wouldn't be a good idea to get bitten by one but I, I've now I've now must have caught around about a hundred of those. Wow! Because I've awesome. been back to Karka a lot of times. I've also caught them in Oro Province, um, in oil palm plantations, and they seem to be one of these species that does rather well in a man man mediated habitat, a man made microhabitat, coconut yeah. plantations, um, and and oil palm. They do well. <clears throat> It's nature's payback. I might have mentioned this before. Um, but when humans turn an area of natural habitat into a monoculture for one of the crops we desire, be it tea, coffee, rice, um, oil palm, uh, rubber, um, coconuts, uh, cocoa, um, it doesn't really matter. If you think about it, you think that, well, the herpetofauna in that habitat, in that man-made microhabitat, is less rich than the neighbouring pristine habitat. But some species do remarkably well and appear to occur in larger numbers than they do in the neighbouring pristine habitat. And it's almost like nature's payback. You mess around with nature and stick one of your boring microhabitats here, monocultures here, one of your monocultures, and we will seed it with a large population of venomous snakes. In the rubber in in um, Thailand, it's Malayan pit vipers. In um, the paddy fields of Sri Lanka, it's 
Cobras, Krites and Russell's Vipers. In the oil palm plantations in Oro, it's small-eyed snakes, and in the coconut plantations on Kaka. In the oil palm plantations in southern Milne Bay, it's Taipan. Um, in uh, coffee plantations up in the, in the highlands, it's death adders. In uh, tea plantations in India, it's pit vipers. So, funnily enough, there's always a venomous snake that does remarkably well, and it ends up biting a lot of the most vulnerable people who are just laborers who often don't have shoes, are very poor, don't have education, don't have the wherewithal to get to hospital. Um, and, and, and they're right on the front line with often a supersized population of venomous snakes in a man-made monoculture that somebody in, a, in an air-conditioned office down in the city is making a lot of money out of. It's yeah. an interesting concept that you do well, see that nature's payback, really, but they're paying back the workers, not the managers. Yeah. So some of the other venomous snakes of Papua. Um, Taipan. 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 Papua and Taipan is the most serious snake bite risk in, in, in southern New Guinea. It's fortunate it's not distributed throughout the whole of um, New Guinea. Um, it is it is a very highly venomous snake um, with a presynaptic neurotoxin, which means that if the... Do you know the neurotoxins, the post and presynaptic neurotoxins work? Because they're quite different. Well, why don't you tell us again so that we well, know all the listeners... Just because something's neurotoxic. Okay, neurotoxin is going to cause uh, neuromuscular paralysis and lots of things you can't move. You can't move your your eye, your eyes. You can't lift your eyelids. You can't move your fingers. But the serious one you're concerned about is you can't breathe. So, um, but the two neurotoxin, two main neurotoxins work in different ways. They're actually different compositions. You've got pre and post synaptic neurotoxin. Now, if you go back to when you did um, uh, anatomy or biology at school, when an impulse passes down a nerve, it's a switch over of potassium and sodium and the impulse goes positive, negative, all the way down the nerve. And then the nerve comes to the next nerve and it's got to jump a synaptic gap for the impulse to carry on. So what you get is you will get um, choline, uh, acetylcholine injected by um, the transmitter sites and it, it will be into the synaptic gap. And the message then crosses the synaptic gap to the next nerve axon and travels down that. And so you don't get spasm. It's followed by acetylcholine, which is an enzyme which destroys the uh, the um, acetylcholine. So a message, otherwise you just get spasm. So if the message passes once over that synaptic gap and goes on down, and then when it gets on muscle, it, it does a similar thing crossing to the muscle. Now, post-synaptic neurotoxin affects the receptor sites on the opposite, on the downstream side of the synapse. Presynaptic neurotoxin affects the transmitter sites on the upstream side but they affect them in different ways. 
the post-synaptic neurotoxin, which you find in cobras and death adders and quite a, a large number of the, 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 the neurotoxic snakes, what that does is effectively the, the venom, it's, put it bluntly, it blocks the receptor sites. It gums them up, if you like, sticking chewing gum in a lock so that when the message comes down and crosses the, the synaptic gap, in the acetylcholine, there is nowhere to receive the message. So it stops, it doesn't tr transmit. So breathe doesn't happen. But if you administer antivenom, the, the response can be very, very rapid. Even patients who are pretty moribund and look like they're really out of it can turn around very quickly if it's a cobra bite or death adder bite. And it basically undoes that damage, unblocks removes the chewing gum from the lock, if you like, and the, the message, the normal service is resumed. The message crosses over. So that's all well and good. Antivenom is fantastic. It will treat this. Not just antivenom. It can actually be treated with neostigmine, which is a drug they use for a condition called myosina gravis. And I actually, I know that it's, that's been used for death adder bites. And, and when I had my Egyptian cobra bite, I was given both antivenom and um, neostigmine. I think it was the first case of neostigmine being given for an African cobra bite. But, you know, you can you can bring the patient back very rapidly from um, envenoming with um, postsynaptic neurotoxin. Not so presynaptic neurotoxin. It doesn't gum up the transmitter sites. It functions like a cytotoxin. It destroys the end of the nerve axon, the transmitter sites and everything. So it isn't, a, once, once that paralysis has been caused, a bucket of antivenom is not going to change that. Yeah, it's, it's inevitable. So what you need is to maintain the ability to breathe. You need the antivenom to basically stop it getting any worse, but you then, you can't reverse that. Time reverses that. And it may take three, five days for the nerve axon end to, to regenerate the transmitter sites. And so during that time, you need to artificially intubate the patient on a ventilator. Or you might have to, you know, the ambu bags you see in ambulances. Sure, sure. Well, I've been in a situation in a hospital in New Guinea where they've got two ventilators and they've got two type and patients on there ventilating them because they're out of antivenom. Um, and they got others being uh, one tox, your extended family, the uh, your one tox, one talk. You see, you all speak the same. Um, they, they've got they, they're trying to teach the one tox how to ambubag, compress this, push the air in, and then release it. And they're trying to teach this to frightened people whose relative is dying, and they're trying to teach them that they must keep doing this for three to five days in relays yeah. without stopping long enough for anoxia to cause a brain death. Yeah. And of course that's really hard. People die simply because the person bagging falls asleep. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a dire situation, but if you can keep, so what you really want is more antivenom. Um, the trouble was that the antivenom in, in Papua New Guinea, it's Australian antivenom, it's very good stuff. It's the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory um, 
polyvalent antivenom. By the time that comes up to New Guinea, the agents that are shipping it up are banging up the price, banging up the price, and it's expensive to start with. Yeah, um, it works out at about two and two point five um, thousand um, US dollars wow. for one. Wow! So um, the health authority can only afford to buy so much antivenom a year because they've got to buy other stuff as well. So they've right. got a glass ceiling, and the price was going up, and the glass ceiling wasn't going up. And so they were hitting it earlier and earlier and running out of antivenom. A lot of the Australian hospitals were aware of this, and they know that doctors in New Guinea will administer an antivenom that's past its um, use-by date, whereas a Western doctor wouldn't. Right. And, it, and this antivenom is still good. Yeah. They oh. tested Taipan antivenom 14 years after its use-by date, and it is still 95% efficacious. So what would you rather wow. have? 95% effective or none at all? Yeah. So, but because but, it's got that date on it, they people tend to think of it like a piece of Walmart chicken. If <laughs> yeah. you use it a week later, you're going to get poisoned. No, you're not. So yeah. long as it's, it's, it's not had its cold chain broken, it's been kept properly, it's very good. But, but no Western doctor would use it for fear of litigation if something went wrong the patient dies and he gets traced back they may get blamed right so so what a lot of the australian hospitals were doing was when they are restocking their antivenom some months before the other stuff's run out they would get all their their old stocks shipped up to new guinea and when i was working up there for with david williams in the australian venom research unit in our room where we kept all the time and we got a building we kept the taipan in that we were milking and we also had a fridge in there with loads of antivenom that was up coming close to its use by date or past that and it was all it hadn't had its cold chain broken it was good antivenom yeah and on two occasions when i was up there Dave, david was in geneva for the who and so i was out uh, covering for him out there, going out with the guys, doing more training, catching taipans, and also dealing with requests. And twice in one week, I got a knock at the door from a doctor from the accident emergency department because we're in the hospital ground saying, we're out of antivenom. Have you got anything? And so I'd go and get the best dated um, uh, polyvalent I could or taipan monovalent if I'd got it, give it to him, and he'd go away. Twice in one week, that saved lives. Wow. Um, and what the project was doing was the ideal, in an ideal world, we needed a Taipan antivenom for Papuan Taipan that was just as effective as the very good but very expensive CSL. Um if possible, a little more forgiving of the temperatures, but you still keep it refrigerated, um, but more economical. <clears throat> and I've said this before, the heroes in Snakebite at the Institute of Clodomiro Picardo at the University of San Jose in Costa yep. Rica. Yep. That's not a biopharma company. That's a university department. And they produce antivenoms. They produce antivenoms for Costa Rica. They produce antivenoms for Latin America. 
they produce antivenom for Brussels viper in Sri Lanka. They produce antivenoms for Africa, where an awful lot of the big biopharma companies like Pasteur and Beringwerk have pulled out. And they were producing, we were milking the taipans, sending them the venom. They were in um, immunizing horses, raising the antivenom, producing antivenom and sending it back. And it went, it went through its trials, uh, blind trials for three years and it passed. And it was just as good as the CSL. And it was $250. Wow. And if, correct me if I'm mistaken. Out of sight. Oh, yeah. This was, this was the same stuff that the Dr. Williams and Owen Pavia were doing a few yes. years back. That yes. It went up being wipelized yeah, eventually, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. David and yeah. Owen. Exactly. But that awesome. project's all over now. Wow. Because of politics and things. And they're back to CSL now. Wow. What a shame. David and Owen are, are actually in Dubai now. Oh, really? One of uh, Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, it's such a bloody shame if when that went under oh god if if i could have got hold of a few hundred thousand dollars or pounds or anything other than yen or lira something you know euros and if we could have got a few hundred that could have kept that project going it would have been money well spent it's over a shame and now the hospitals are probably scrabbling around for expensive antivenoms again and death rates will be up again what wow. David, what David and Owen achieved in New Guinea was was phenomenal. Rig yeah. turned everything around, and it couldn't have happened without ICP in in um, in Costa Rica, the true heroes of 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 snakebite. They absolutely are a wow. phenomenal department. That's yeah. incredible, absolutely but, incredible. Taipan is, I mean, we found one location, and I won't disclose where it is for obvious reasons, where we, in a week, saw 46 Taipan and caught 10. And, like, you'd be walking along, and you'd see one, and you'd try to catch it, and it'd get away. No worries. You'll see another one in five minutes. It was amazing, but I'll not disclose where that was. Because I wouldn't want to think about, you know, people just going up to catch them for, well, to be perfectly honest, there's so many Papuan Taipans in, in the trade now, there's no need. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they, they, they were thick on the ground there. I can imagine. There's there's another snake that's always been fascinating to me, and that's Sudecus Papuanus. And from what I, I gather, knew, that I knew is, you were going to say that. You you knew I was going to ask it, and yeah, that, that yeah. snake is incredible to me. And from what I gather, they are just disappearing. They were disappearing. Oh, okay. They were because they were they were eating amphibians, and of course, along hops, Rhinella marina, and they chow down on one of those, and you've got a dead purple and black. And certainly in in central province. Um, you see, you, you, you've got the population in Central Province. I'm not sure if they're in Gulf. I imagine they would be, whereas the Taipan would be less so because the Taipan likes it more open country and Gulf is swamps and and, and mangroves and stuff. But um, they're in Central Province, down all the way from Gulf Province uh, border all the way down to Milne Bay, um, right through Port Moresby. 
And then the other big populations in the southern Transfly um, from um, Oriomo River and Balemo and the, on the Arema River right the way across to Maroki in, um, in West New Guinea. And then to a degree north, probably um, uh, Lake uh, Daviambu and places like that. So there's two distinct populations. And of course, the Western province population is linked to um, Sabai and Boigo Islands just off the coast, which are Australian territory, which means that they are part of the Australian herptofauna as well. Now, there are cane toads around there, but not the numbers that were in central province. And they did, they did, the, the snake did seem to drop off the populations. It was, you didn't see them. And I thought they were going to go extinct. And they, they may well have been extirpated in parts of their range. Extirpation is a localized extinction. Parts of their range in central province. Um, and there was a missionary who heard that, these snakes were poisoned by the toads. So he hired a, a, a Cessna light aircraft, collected loads and loads of cane toads, and he flew all the way up the coast, seeding all of the watercourses with cane toads. Wow. Like you need him to do that. Wow. Yeah. I just sat behind him and pushed him out. Um, How do you do that? That's crazy. Because he was doing God's work. Oh, he was getting God. rid of the snakes. They reckon were killing people. When it was taipans were killing people anyway, and they don't eat cane toads. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Papua and Black, the fall guy. Um, and and some people can't tell the difference because the taipans are often black. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Now, in Western province, I don't think they were as badly hit because I caught one in Western province, which sadly I had to euthanize because it had been hit by a machete in a school of train it was fighting you know it was angry when i got to yeah. it i had to catch that but it had been badly injured so i had to euthanize that but i've i've caught a number i think i've probably seen four or five now in in western province and i haven't been in western province more than a couple of times whereas they're much scarcer in central province but they are coming back because we had one come in from the Vararata plateau which is a lot higher the Navarata National Park, it's like a tableland above Port Moresby, which is very damp. Um, but we didn't think they were at that sort of elevation, but they are because we got one in from there. And then we had one, a big female damaged um, in from a, a liquid nat natural, liquefied natural gas site up the coast. So I went out there and um, I caught a male. Wow. Um, in the, in the, what's it called? Um, pandanus palms in the roots of pandanus. So they haven't all been wiped out, but the numbers aren't. I think Dave Williams saw one in Central Province. The car in front of him ran, ran it over on the road. Oh, jeez. But, but they're not, they, they weren't completely exterminated by the cane toads. And if anything, I say cane toad numbers are down. Really? Um, I don't. When I was last there, I don't. I don't. Didn't feel I saw as many around Moresby as I used to. Um, the other thing that I used to see a lot of were giant African land snails that had been brought in as food, and there was one area on one bend 
where they'd obviously escaped. And you'd go through there and you're just driving over giant African land snails. They're gone. Wow. They're gone. Wow. So, you know, if the cane toads are disappearing, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, taking it back. any Varanid thinking of eating amphibians are making a bad mistake as well. Anything that tries to eat amphibians and chows down on one of those, it's going to die. Yeah, for sure. The only things that don't seem to are the um, Tropidinophus, the keelbacks. Yeah. And they seem to have, because they're of Oriental origin, they seem to have some sort of bufotoxin um, resistance. But the point is they simply don't get big enough to eat yeah. Yeah. the smaller toads. Sure, sure, absolutely. So what about um, death adders? Yeah, they're hard to find, but when you find them, you find a few. They're, it's like raking through leaves. Um, there are certainly two species, very likely more. Um, the rough-scale death adder is found um, from like Maroki to over the border into Western Province, maybe as far as Moorhead. And they are rough scaled, you can tell. They're quite different to the rest of New Guinea. We tend to call the smooth scale death adder um, lavis. Um, but that probably is a bunch of species that simply haven't been worked yeah. up, you know, yet. And I haven't looked in, in my museum work, and I've looked at thousands of snakes. I have not yet sat down and really tried to sort out from a morphological standpoint, what's happening with the death adders there. It's yeah. something I'd like to do, but there's been other uh, genera that I've needed to work on before that, like Micropecis. Oh, yeah, because I've got a what I'm pretty damn sure is a new species of Micropecis. Really? Yeah. There's only the one species recognised at the moment. We do think that it's a complex, but I've got one that looks nothing like any of them. That's um, awesome. I was, in, I was in the museum in Paris and um, I was working through a lot of their Papuan stuff and I was working on the Micropecis and they got two Micropecis that were mislabeled. They were Aspidomorphus uh, Schlegeli, which looked nothing like Micropecis, but they were labeled Micropecis. The collector thought they were and nobody thought to change that. So I got those corrected and they, they've got a few Micropecis. And then I came to one, I looked at it in the jar, and it had got a very reticulate pattern. Now, one of the steganotus in New Guinea that we resurrected from synonymy was steganotus reticulatus. And it really is quite an obvious looking snake. Every scale is pale with a dark edge. So oh, wow. you get this reticulate network pattern. And I looked at this Micropecus in this jar and I go, <laughs> not only have they got two Aspidomorphous Schlegelai mislabeled, there's a there's a Steganotus reticulatus here. And I opened the jar and I took the specimen out and thought, no, it ain't. Because it looked like from the neck, the rest of it down, looked like Steganotus reticulatus. But the head was that of an elapid, not wow. a colibrid. And you could see the fangs. It had no l'oreal scale. It had small eyes. It had a temporal labial scale. It's a micropecus. 
That's but awesome. it ain't like any Metro Pecos I've ever seen before. And what, I think, what, what does it feel like to actually just have that moment where oh, you great. think this is new? It's new, but I, I've had that moment quite a few times. Yeah, I know you have had it. Yeah, it is. I mean, I was gobsmacked, and they've lent. I've got it. I've got it. In, I've got it at the university at the moment because I'm working on it. And you know, um, the Paris Museum loaned it to me. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it, it, you sort of think, well, I, I mean, I have. I have seen not far. I've caught probably eighty to a hundred micropecis. Um, live ones, mostly for venom research and things like that. Museum specimens, I've photographed and got data from over 300. Wow. From right throughout the whole range. Now, that includes the half-banded form that everyone's familiar with, which is found throughout most of New Guinea. The full-banded form we only find around, around um, Mimica River, Timica. Um, in the south of West New Guinea and also reputedly on Arrow Island, but I've not seen Arrow Island specimens yet. And I've seen the yellow one. It's all yellow in no bands that you find up on the Vogel Cop, northwest New Guinea, and on, um, Batan on um, most of Salawati Island and Misool. I've seen the black one that you get on Wago, Batanta, and possibly a little bit of northern Salawati. Wow. So I've seen those four forms um, as museum specimens and got all the day drop them and all the photographs and everything. But this is nothing like any of those. This pattern, they're all some degree of the bands are there or gone. Um, it's either half banded, fully banded, not banded, or totally melanistic. So you can see all of that coming off that one pattern. But this is nothing like this. This is completely different. This is reticulate. Every scale is pale with a dark edge. And wow. the head is dark grey, like a typical Micropecus head. And I just, yeah, I was I was quite amazed. So That's looking awesome. forward to working more on that. Which uh, kind of leads me on, dare I ask, how is the new book coming or the updated the book? book well, if I wasn't talking to you, I'd probably be. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, I'm working on two main projects at the moment. One of them, because the other books are, are out of the way. I mean, you know, the, um, uh, the second revised edition of the Book of Snakes is out in November, December. You know, the big, the big thumping big book. Well, the whole revised edition's got all the updated um updated taxonomy, um, two new families, a bunch of subfamilies have been raised as family status, as up-to-date as it possibly could be when it went to press. So that's out in the next couple of months. And then that's the, the, I've written a chapter for a book on islands and snakes, which is out in January, and Frogs of the World will be out in March. So those are all out of the way. Um, so I'm back on working on, on my New Guinea snake book. And what I'm incorporating at the moment, I've been doing some work on the blind snakes um, because Fred Krauss has just described a new blind snake, um, um, a new uh, Ramphotiflops. Um, he also, uh, over last, earlier this year, described five new Gerophilus, or is it six? So I've had to incorporate all of those. 
That's super I'm also incorporating um, now, because it's been a recognized, um, the split between in the green tree pythons. So you've got the southern uh, viridis and you've got northern azoria, but azoria is actually three subspecies. Um, so I'm, in, I'm that's what I've been working on over the last few days is pulling all the data together for those. Um, excellent, excellent, excellent. It's all coming along. Um, I'm concentrating a lot on still on toxic calamus because um, we've we've got um, working on the toxic calamus Prusi complex, and um, there's going to be one, two, probably three new species there. Plus, there's a really elongate one with an absolutely amazing ventral count of around 380 something. Wow. But I won't be describing that because the specimen is crispy, crisp and broken into three pieces. Oh, geez. So um, I, I simply won't make that a holotype. And it's the only one of this species anywhere in the collection. So it would be really nice to go and find another one. Sure. Uh, it won't be rare. They're probably very common but they're just overlooked. So this thing's like bootlace. Um, <laughs> so there's going to be th three, at least three new toxic calamus there. Plus I've got that toxic calamus that was mis mislabeled as a steganotus, which we're working on, which is also very interesting because it's got 17, 17, 17 dorsal scale rows, which is only seen in Longissimus from Woodlock Island. And it ain't that. I'm pretty damn sure it ain't that because Gestalt says it isn't that. I just look at it and I go, you're not Longissimus. You just don't feel right. You don't look right. So that's all coming along. And I'm also doing quite a lot of work on the um, cataloging all the specimens from the Archbold expeditions. Um, Richard Archbold was, um, he was the heir to, I think it was Standard Oil, very rich gentleman. Okay. Um, in the 1930s, and he was uh, a zoologist. And whilst a lot of sons of heirs of fortunes tend to go and squander their money on wine, women, and song, he didn't. He um, he ran three expeditions to New Guinea in the 1930s, two to to Papua New Guinea, and two one to Dutch New Guinea then, which is the western half. And he introduced aeroplanes in, used aeroplanes, float planes um, to get into some of the remote areas. And they made some amazing collections and their collections are all in the American Museum of Natural History. And we'd be a lot poorer without those. Now, then World War Two intervened. Um, so obviously they couldn't do any expeditions to New Guinea because there were a lot of Japanese there. And then after the war, um, they uh, did an expedition to Queensland. Well, I'm not cataloguing that. But they they then went and did another four expeditions in New Guinea, all in Papua New Guinea. Again, amazing collections. Lots of lots of species were described from them. Holotypes of Toxicalimus missimae for a start. Um, Toxicalimus uh, spilolepidotus came out of their collections. The first collections of Pseudonagia textilis were specimens that they collected. Um, really important collections. And at the moment, I've they're all in the AMH in New York. And I've I've sort of pinned down 
not far short of 3,000 reptiles. So I'm looking at the lizards and the turtles and the crocs as well, cataloging the whole lot. And I, I think I've got about, and I'm updating all the taxonomy and I'm going to need to go across to New York and, and look at some of the specimens. And I, th I think we've got, what, 2,700 something reptiles. They also collected a lot of amphibians. And I don't know, I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to try and work through those as well. At the moment, I'm working um, from the from the, the lists that I've got from the the museum um, and working out what things are. But it's, it, that's a slow burn project as well. I love big projects that you can get into and, st and feel you're really getting somewhere. And the saddest thing is when you finish them because it's anticlimactic. But I'm, I'm really hoping to do something really useful with with the Archbold expedition material because it was such those were such important expeditions our knowledge would be so much less about new guinea reptiles and amphibians if it were not for those expeditions which were funded by by richard archbold there's now in yeah there's an archbold research center in florida is it really yes um I gotta check that out. It. it's all from richard archbold yeah, and they've got a oh. center in Florida. I'd love to go there where they, they do work on Florida herps and stuff now. Not just herps, but yeah, that still still um still going today. And, yeah, and check it out. Started out when he when he met um some of his like minded colleagues, um uh, Lionel Brass and um and Rand. Was it Stanley Rand? And he met them in, in Madagascar. And then they put together this idea wow. of let's go to let's go to New Guinea. That's in wild. 1933. I can't imagine what it must have taken to do that. Oh man, I wish <laughs> I'd that's when I should have been around doing <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Well so I, I'm fascinated by the history of, of exploration like that and you know following where people were. And there, there are various other people who've contributed greatly to our knowledge um my good friend fred parker he was a kiap which is a, a pigeon word um it means it's from the it's from the german for capitan and the kiap was the guy who walked all around in new in papua new guinea during the australian times and would go out with um half a dozen uh police boys with their rifles and they'd go and arrest murderers and headhunters and uh, cannibals and bring them back to justice and they'd go out and sort out land disputes and when somebody's stolen your pig you'd go and sort of deal with that they were the law and they didn't they they walked everywhere they walked they they opened up amazing areas jack hind hides he did treks where people died on the treks you know they were so hard they walked they'd go up the fly river then they'd to stop their carriers fleeing, they'd burn the boats and then they'd walk through the mountains, through the jungles, through the villages, sometimes getting attacked, sometimes having to fight their way out of places wow. and work their way back down. And they'd be away months and months and months and months living off the land. And Fred Parker was a key up um, in the, from about 1959 to sometime in the mid sixties. And he was, he was very into herpetology. He, trained with Charles Tanner um, in Australia. 
and um, he collected lots and lots of reptiles. Uh, most of them went um, to the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, and they shared them out with uh, American Museum in Natural History in New York and the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. So, but they're great collections. Of, and Fred Parker's collections are, he's still alive, he's still going strong. Um, these guys, I mean, they're, they're tough as tough as war horses. Um, and he, 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 his collections have greatly helped with our knowledge because I'm now looking at them. And, you know, when I described Toxicallus Ernst Mayeri, that was a specimen he'd collected, thought it was Micropechis, thought it might be a new species of Micropechis, but thought it was Micropechis, put it in the museum in, in, um, in uh, Harvard. Wow. And when I got there and was working through the Micropechis, I go, bloody hell, this isn't a Micropechis, this is a giant Toxicalamus. And it, that was toxic, called it Toxicalamus Ernst Mayeri. And then there was another guy. There was um, Father, Father Shelley. And Father Shelley went in with the, into, um, into New Guinea with the American troops towards the end of fighting the Japanese. And he was basically there to try and un-Japanese some of the villagers and sort of, you know, they've been under Japanese control for several years. And he was there to sort of try and minister and bring back the West, if you like. And he settled um, in Eastern Highlands province. And he, he collected a lot, oddly, a lot of missionaries collected snakes. I don't know if they felt they were doing God's work by killing them and sending them to a museum. But he did some big collections of, of which are really important specimens in, in now. And I thought I'd been told he died um, years and years ago. But I did some research. No, he only died a few years ago. I'd been told he died in an air crash. He hadn't. Just he went back to the States, retired and died like an old clergyman, you know. Wow. Um, but these collections are seminal in, in our research. It's not all about going out and walking around in the jungle and finding new species. There's an awful lot of material that's already been collected that you need to sort of get a handle on first and never find out. Because you find new, new species in nature and in the wild. You know, we found, I haven't talked about Timor at all. We found yeah, a lot of new species. We'll have, to, we'll have to have you back on to talk about Timor now. Right again? Yeah, <laughs> What we'll, we'll do is we'll, we'll we'll have round three with with Timor and, and and Australia, and then yeah. we'll get to do our question answer. We're, we're we're over two hours now. Are we indeed? We've had a lot of people um, get in contact, and they want to do a question and answer with you if you're. Oh, I'm happy to. Yeah. Uh, so we might get some other people on just to ask you some questions. Yeah, that'd uh, be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we also need to finish off with Australia and Timor. Yeah, yes. But uh, we've taken up a lot of your time this evening, so we, we do thank you so much for coming on. It's always an absolute pleasure. An honour. An absolute honour. I, 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 I thoroughly enjoy um, I thoroughly enjoy chatting about fieldwork and experiences. And yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, it's I, absolutely incredible. I, I've got a couple of amazing coincidences, one which I'll tell you maybe next time. Um, yeah. One I might have told it. One was African, and the other one was was Australian. Okay, um, well, save it. Don't save it for yeah. round three. Round three. I will bully Phil to send you 
because uh, now we've got for for everybody that's listening, we now have a Teespring account, and uh, it's not up yet, but it will be soon. It's imminently, sorry, it's imminently coming. So we will have a number of T-shirts and and various bits, but I will make sure Phil sends you. Uh, a Dirt Snake Mafia shirt and a Venom Exchange when, Radio when shirt. When this next time, I want to see you wearing a Dirt Snake Mafia t-shirt. I'm on it. Well, I won't be wearing one ever. No, that's what I mean, Nipper. I know. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've, 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 I'm lucky enough to have a Venom Exchange Radio one already, so I'll, I'm happy yeah. to wear that. <laughs> I, I will. No, I've seen them in the wild, and they scared me quite a lot because um, they're so unpredictable. Oh, so uh, A-Tracked Aspies, but they're not the only dirt snakes. No, no, no. no come on, there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing stuff. You know, people just walk out, they don't see it, walk over it. Blind it's snake. Just... I mean, quite, there's so many blind snakes now. I, mean, I suppose, yeah, blind snakes. People think you've seen one, you've seen them all. But the, I've only the one, seen uh, the cute tip flops from New Guinea. They eat earthworms. They're not small. All right, that's cool. They eat earthworms. And you okay. get some big earthworms. You get the big, big megascolosid earthworms. In, yeah. in Mark, Southern you are Africa. not going to convince me that dirt snakes are cool. I'm sorry. Mm. What I mm. think is interesting is that when we were in, uh, when Nipper was down here in our Florida herp trip, he had his heart set on finding a scarlet king snake. Yeah. And that is a Florida dirt snake, sir. That's it not. Is. It's a brightly just because no. it's Lampropeltis does not mean it is not fossorial. They, I mean, they, they are semi fossorial, it's a semi fossorial genus. I mean, they, they're down, they're down there. Okay, they're so, rooting around looking for things, they're eating things that are down. That's going to be so. The scarlet is one of my yeah. most wanted sea snakes in the so world. It, yeah. We're going to yeah. make elapsoides is the gateway drug to Dursnake Mafia. <laughs> yeah, yes. and once you've hooked him. That'll be it. That'll be it. I'll, I'll be, I'll <laughs> be, it'll, be, it'll be ringing you up. You say, have you got any Bibronai I can have? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Have you got any Bibronai? We need one for the county fair. I want to put it in the lucky dip. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That is very cool. Well, thank you again, sir. So much yeah, as always. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Um, so people... Buy the new copy of Snakes of the World. If you haven't got it, it is a fabulous, fabulous book. It's got some fantastic photographs in there, especially mine. But do, <laughs> check, it, do check out the new version That Did you say you've done an updated version of Frogs of the World as well? No, Frogs of the World is out. Frogs of the World is out in March. And that's co-written, co-authored with uh, Simon Maddock, who was my colleague at Wolverhampton University of Wolverhampton. He's just moved to Newcastle. Um, I'm just looking if I... If I've got a copy of the, the because I'll show you a copy of, let me just run and get a copy of um, of the second volume, the revised edition. Of, okay. Because I, they they sent me the advanced copies. The others are on in a ship coming over from Asia. I'll just go and grab that and show you it. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I can't Folks, wait to see it. Before he comes back, just a huge thank you. As always, we really appreciate you listening. Um, like and subscribe. Tell your friends. We know you could be listening to anything else, and you listen to us, which we really appreciate. Um, we've got some fabulous guests coming up. Uh, we're going to try and do some more Australian stuff. If, if you remember, with um, the Book of Snakes, Book yeah. of Snakes, um, 
the US edition was a bluish cover and the UK yeah, edition right. was a white cover. Yeah. Right. Um, now there's only going to be the one because it's just the US edition. Um, but it's so it's a it's the blue cover, so but it's got there in orange. Oh, very nice. Um, a second edition is fully revised. Yeah. Um, like <clears throat> it was first edition was 2018. Oh, okay. Five years ago. And you think, God, was it really five? Yeah. COVID compressed time because we didn't have any markers. Yeah. So it's well, five years ago. And in that I five strongly years, recommend it to people. Yes. Well, in definitely. that five years, Cyclocory Day. The family described the Philippines. Mikria Lapide is a family described from sort of, um, the Levant and into Africa. Two new families. Bunch of subfamilies are now family status. Grey Day, Calamari Day, um, Ungaliophidae. Um, so there's quite a few. And of course, a lot of things have changed genus. What was. Um, uh, Gonianotrophus uh, capensis is now Limophomosa capensis. Okay. So you had to move all these things around. So it was quite a, a task. But when they said, well, we need to do a second edition, I said, well, I want, to, I want to go through and sort it all out. And a lot of things have had to, like, move. Whole spreads have moved. Oh, and, yeah. of course, I had the Levant Viper and I had the Milos Viper in there. The Milos Viper is now synonymized with the Levant Viper. So I had to find something else to go in. So there's there's 18, 18 entirely new um, uh, species because 18 had to drop out and things like that. So it was a it was a big getting it done in time. But that's University, uh, University of Chicago Press. Excellent. Fantastic. When's, when's the actual purchase date? Well, I'm told November. Amazon have got December. I will have copies, and I'll be I'll be doing my usual, which is a you know I'll, I'm selling signed cop I'll sign copies and, and ship them. And what I've done in the past with that actually is with some of the herb societies, they've pulled together, and I've sent them a box of signed copies by DHL. Works out a lot cheaper. I, I've done that. The, the Australians, um, they had a box. Of, uh, of of the first edition, and uh, the New, New Zealand Herb Society they had a box. Uh, South Africa I did the same. Denmark had a box from a box of specimen, a box of books from me, um, because that was a cheaper way of of doing the postage, and more assured to get there as well. Sure, sure. You know? But yeah, because now shipping shipping anything across the pond is ridiculously expensive. It is. Tell it's me brutal. about it. Well, yeah. thank you, Mark. We really appreciate it. And we will have you back on as soon as possible. And as I say, we've got some questions that people have sent in, so we'll do a, a question and answer. Thing. Yeah, that, that'll be cool. I'd, I'd enjoy that. That's, That's brilliant. brilliant. Thank you very much. So, folks, thank you very much, and good night. Bye. <laughs>